And here's our text for this afternoon. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. After the proclamation of God's word, we'll praise God with the words of hymn 79, stanzas 1, 3, and 4. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, if there is one central theme that stands out in the writings of the Apostle Paul and all his writings, it is a theme of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. For him, that is, at one and the same time, central, basic, and the most delightful. And we've seen that. I've preached more often on Ephesians. If you know the letter, if you know the writings of Paul, you know that. With Ephesians, it starts already in the very opening paragraph, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he recites that great chain of God's redemptive purposes in Christ there in chapter 1, it is said to be all to the praise of God's glorious grace. The word comes up 12 times in this brief letter. Grace is the single sole basis of salvation. It had to be, Paul said in chapter 2, because of ourselves, we are entirely dead and we will never get to anything that pleases God. Paul's own mission was worded in terms of grace. This grace was given to me, he says, to preach to the Gentiles. The work of every office bearer is described in terms of grace. He refers to the administration of God's grace. Chapter 3, verse 2, that's what office bearers do. They administer the grace of God. It is grace that saves people. It is grace that builds a people. The Christian life is to be seen as a life in which we walk in the grace that has been provided in Jesus Christ. I think, by the way, we often get this quite wrong. We often say that what we need is a balance between law and grace. We need some admonition. We need some law for a few weeks. Then we need some comfort. We need some grace. We need a balance. And we need preaching that strikes the balance. But the gospel is not 50% law and 50% grace. The gospel is 100% the grace of God. And preaching doesn't need to strike this balance that approach betrays the fact that we have not sufficiently abandoned the legalism whereby we attempt to make ourselves right with God by what we do or do not do. It's a futile enterprise. Rather than being a balance between grace and law, we need to see that it's always the good news of God's grace that will result in grateful lives of obedience in which we will come around again to the matter of the law. Paul says in Romans 3 verse 20, no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. In other words, the law will never be an instrument of salvation. And then Paul begins to tell us how it goes instead. He begins to talk about justification by faith, through grace, alone. And that is not that the law is entirely abandoned. Romans 7, he talks about the law and the flesh. And he says that neither of those can really get us there. 
But in chapter 8, he talks about the grace of God and how the grace of God and the Spirit of God actually makes it happen that the perfect requirements of the law begin to be completed in us. It is never just the law, it is grace that results in lives of godliness. And by means of the grace of God, we can do all kinds of things. It's not just about earning salvation. It's also about living the Christian life in a way that is, that is appropriate. There are many burdens that happen in our lives as well. And how do we get through those burdens and through those difficulties except by the grace of God? I think of this brother we mentioned this morning in prayer, our brother Chris Swaving. How do you get through life without any legs to really think about? In my own home congregation, we had a brother who was not expected to live beyond his teen years, but he did. And he went on to get a degree. He went on to teach school. At the end of his life, he could, all he could do physically was, was push the joystick on his wheelchair. But he stood before the legislature. He didn't stand. He wheeled himself before the legislature. And he talked about how this life was worth living and we should stop trying to decide about such things, but leave them in the hands of God. How do you do that except by the grace of God? How do you put up with the burdens that come our way except by the grace of God? There are delightful words of John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. He said these. He said, if you understand the grace of God, it makes the worst times bearable. You can actually endure under them and it makes the best times leavable that means even the best times in this life are nothing compared with the glory that is going to be revealed if you understand the grace of God it makes the worst times bearable and the best times leavable well not surprisingly the Paul who has so much to say about God's grace ends on that note as well. Ephesians 6, verse 24. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Or as I would prefer it, grace to all who love our Lord Jesus with an undying love. God's word comes to you under this theme. Paul's benediction to the churches of Asia Minor. Grace to all who have an undying love for our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll talk about the content of this benediction. We'll talk about the Catholicity of this benediction. And we'll talk about its condition. Brothers and sisters, it seems to me that as we think about the transforming nature of the grace of God, we should not overlook that grace in the person who writes these words. I mean, how do you go from being a person who once so hated Christians that he sought to kill them Acts 8, verse 3, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. How do you go from that to Ephesians 6, verse 24, where he wishes every blessing to every person who loves the Lord Jesus? Obviously, you do that only by the grace of God. At the same time, though, you have to realize that here Paul is using the word grace in a slightly different way. Words can have a different shade of meaning depending on the context in which they're being used. 
Here Paul is not using grace in the sense of Ephesians 2, where the grace of God is absolutely the first thing that works in us. There it's not your wishes or your will or your willpower that starts the process of conversion. How can it when you are dead, Paul says in Ephesians 2? God's grace is absolutely first. God has to give you even the will and the desire to believe and to listen to his word. The spirit of God and his grace makes dead people alive. It takes the spirit of God to even make us want to embrace the gospel. And so here, Paul cannot be saying, can he, that people have to first show their undying love to Christ before the grace of God will come into their lives. I can't be saying that. Instead, here Paul is using the word not as referring to that which is needed at the very beginning of our lives, but to that which we need throughout our lives. We need the grace of God not just to get in. We need the grace of God to survive. We need the grace of God to live and to flourish the Christian life. We need the grace of God even to die. The truth is we need the grace of God. God's grace designed the path, underlies the path, surrounds its edges, and lies at its end. Grace is the foundation of our existence, and it's the fuel for our performance. And so it has to do more with God's ongoing favorable disposition towards us and all the people of God. You can think here of Ephesians 2 verse 7 where Paul talks about the incomparable riches of his grace. Don't you love that phrase? The incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. This is the wish then in our text that God would just continue to show his kindness and his mercy and his love towards all his people. In a word that the God whose grace started everything might continue to do so to the end, forever, for all of them. And that's confirmed also by the context, the words around our text, because look at what else Paul is wishing for God's people. Verse 21, he thinks of his readers' well-being as he tells us about Tychicus. Tychicus was a missionary colleague who seems to have come from Ephesus to Rome where Paul is writing this letter as he's in prison. But Tychicus, who was a blessing to Paul in prison, Paul is going to send him back to Ephesus in order that he might encourage the Ephesians with knowledge of how he's doing. This is Paul. This is Paul the pastor. Concerned more about other people than he is about himself. He writes to the Ephesians, he writes to the Philippians, and he's always concerned about them, even though he's in prison and of all places. But this is Paul, more concerned about how they are doing than he is doing. That's what the grace of God does to us. It makes us other-oriented. It gets us away from ourselves. And in verse 23, he says, Peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul the pastor, entirely concerned that they might receive everything that they should receive in Jesus Christ from encouragement to peace to love with faith. That's what the grace of God does. It delivers us from self-centeredness and causes us to think about the well-being of everybody else. 
It turns what could very well be a lecture hall in which we all simply rationally are connected into a place where we're actually concerned about each other from the heart. Connected also at the heart level, the church begins to wish peace and love and grace upon all the people of God. You see it with Paul. You see it among the people of God. Think of our reading from Romans. Romans 12. Paul has spent about 11 chapters talking about the the grace of God, how, how you need it and how you receive it through faith in Christ alone. And then in chapter 12, he gets down to the nitty gritty and talks about what difference grace of God means and makes in our lives. And he says this, love one another, be devoted to one another, share with God's people, live in harmony with one another, do not repay revenge anyone, to anyone, evil for evil, do not take revenge. Sometimes I hear about the tensions and even the hatreds and even the feuds that exist among some families in the church, even among God's people. And then we wonder, really? Is this what the grace of God teaches us? That so we should live? Really? The word of God says, know it. It's a call for self-examination. It says, get them together. Those who you've been fighting with, let the peace of Christ reign. That's what he died for. It's not that hard to show love, is it? Especially if you bask daily in the wonder of the love of God in Jesus Christ. Shouldn't you be loving as a result of that? It's even the very summary of what God wants of us. The summary of the law is not think about God, think about your neighbor. It's love God, love your neighbor. And the grace of God actually transforms our hearts so that we begin to do that. It happens when we live in the shadow of the grace and love of God and his son. Earlier I suggested the grace of God makes all things bearable. God actually shapes and molds us by way of some of the things that are very difficult for us. And as a matter of fact, he does that more often through things that are difficult than through things that are easy. Because if they're easy, we pat ourselves on the back. If they're difficult, we learn to lean on God. You see, it's actually possible, not desirable, but possible to live for decades with a handicapped child. It's possible to live without a spouse. It's possible to live through family difficulties or to bear up under the weight of great illness. But that doesn't mean it's automatic or that it's easy. That's why we need each other. That's why God puts us in a church so that we'll help each other. We're connected at the heart level and are a blessing to each other. But most of all, that's also why we need the grace of God, not just at the beginning of our Christian lives, but throughout. We need that not only as the foundation of our existence, but as the fuel for our performance. But even that's not automatic. I think of how the Catechism summarizes Scripture in Lord's Day 45. 
By the time we get through Lord's Day 45, we've been through sin and misery. We've been through our deliverance. We're, we've been through the commandments. We think we're doing pretty well here. We should be able to say amen now. And then there's the matter of prayer. And we think, do we still need that? And Lord's Day 45 says, yes, you need that. Why do you need that? Why do we need to pray? Because God will give his grace and Holy Spirit only to those who constantly and with heartfelt longing ask him for these gifts and thank him for them. It's as if the catechism is saying to the seasoned Christian, God will give you grace and the Holy Spirit. Know this, only when you continually ask for this and thank God for this. There's a delightful passage in John chapter 1 where he says so delightfully, 1 verse 16, John says that from out of the fullness of the revelation of God in Christ, we have all received grace upon grace. Do you ever stand on the beach of the ocean and just watch one wave come in and when it's finished, another wave comes in? And when it's finished, another wave comes in, wave upon wave. That's the imagery here. We have all received grace upon grace. This never-ending flow of the grace of God. The NIV 2011 captures it beautifully when it translates, Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. That's what happens in Christ. It's a never-ending beach of waves. It's grace upon grace, wave upon wave. And this then is the major content of Paul's benediction, that we and God's people might just continue to receive wave upon wave of the grace of God in Jesus Christ all our days. And then we also need to notice a small but very significant word. It's the word all. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus in sincerity. Think of this. Sometimes I believe we are guilty of thinking too small about the grace of God. In my early years, and maybe in your early years, it was actually controversial among some as to whether or not you would refer to anybody who was not Canadian Reformed as brother or sister. We've all heard the jokes about heaven and how we imagined that we were the only ones here and you have to be quiet because here's the Canadian Reformed and, and they're the only ones who are here. The Baptists have the same jokes. Every group imagines the grace of God is exclusively for them and them alone. You see, because sectarianism comes easy, but insight into the Catholicity of the church is very rare. But this is Paul. Grace be to all who love our Lord Jesus. And that word all is very significant in the understanding of the apostle. That significance you see in the portion of chapter 2 that we read together. There Paul talks about how God has brought Jew and Gentile together through the blood of the cross. 
And he's broken down that dividing wall of hostility. This was the number one problem in the early Christian church. Are we actually going to bring Gentiles into this Jewish structure? Well, Christ has, has broken down this dividing wall of hostility, says Paul, and made one new man out of the two. And the result of that, says Paul, is threefold. You have now one temple, you have one kingdom, you have one family that God is building in Christ. Paul talks about the worldwide effects of the death of Jesus Christ and those last throughout the ages until he returns. And he's talking in various images about the church gathering work of our Lord Jesus Christ. But you have to realize that who exactly are bricks in the temple who exactly are citizens of the kingdom, who exactly are members of that family, is not something that you and I get to determine. Thankfully, it's up to a very gracious God. Paul talks in chapter 4, verse 6, about the one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And this is how, what you have to think about, he says in chapter 2, verse 19, how it is your privilege to be part of this. He says this to people who are like you and me. I think we're mostly Gentiles, unless you're of strong Jewish stock. We are Gentiles. And Paul says, this is what you ought to celebrate. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God that you might be a part of this temple, part of this family, part of this kingdom. That's your privilege and your joy. It reminds me of another phrase of our catechism in Lord's Day 7 when it talks about faith. And it says, what is faith? Faith is a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me. Our inclination is to turn that around. If you have a perspective that tends to self-righteousness and sectarianism, that, that's the perspective, by the way, that we all default to if we don't understand the grace of God. If you have a perspective that tends to self-righteousness and sectarianism, then you think, I know that I am in, but I'm not sure about anybody else. Then you make it, faith is a firm confidence that to me and maybe to others, there is the grace of God. Then you make it not only to me, and you waver about others. But this is scripture, and hence your confession. It's a given that there are others, not only to others. But what's amazing is that it's also for me, but also to me. What is true faith? A firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation. That's amazing. You have it elsewhere in your confession as well. Have we forgotten Article 27 of our Belgian Confession? We believe and profess one Catholic or universal church, which is a holy congregation, an assembly of true Christian believers who expect their entire salvation in Jesus Christ, are washed by his blood, and are sanctified and sealed by the Holy Spirit. Moreover, it says this holy church is not confined or limited to one particular place or to certain persons but is spread and dispersed throughout the entire world. 
So what does that mean? Does that mean you can go wherever you want? No, there are marks of the church, the confession goes on to say. There are marks by which we can see when a church is faithful to the word of God and when it's not faithful. Not everything that calls itself church is faithful to him. But that doesn't deny the fact that the grace of God is operative all over the world. And you aren't the one who controls the grace of God. God is. It doesn't mean you can go wherever you want. It doesn't mean either that you can become, say, 22, 23 years old, make profession of faith. Or when you're thinking about profession of faith, you say, okay, well, let me see. Where is the best display of the the church of Jesus Christ? And, And go wherever you want to go because you think that fits your fancy better. If you don't like where you've been brought up, if you think the church needs improving, well, you know what you have to do? Begin improving the church by improving yourself. But it never denies the fact that the grace of God is operative all over the world and throughout the ages. It's an amazing thing. You can go around the world all because of this one book. You can go around the world and you can meet people whom you have never seen before And after half an hour discussion or so, you come to the conclusion that that person has God as his father and Jesus Christ as his brother. Well, you know what? If God is your father and Jesus Christ is your brother, then you know what? We are family. That's Paul. It's only the grace of God that turns those who are opposed to God into believers. And as long as churches exist, they are recipients of the grace of God. And some churches may be very far in their understanding of the grace and the doctrines of grace. And some churches may not be quite as far. We all have our imperfections and we should not think somehow that we have arrived and now it's our charge to see whether anybody else has arrived like us. Humility is a virtue not only for believers but also for churches. There are imperfections, are there not, that we too need yet to collectively overcome. The truth is my status I may hold my church dear, and I may believe, and I do believe, that church is very important in anyone's life, but my status of being a brother to my Lord Jesus Christ is not dependent on a federation. It will not be a federation that saves. It's dependent on my relationship to Jesus Christ and his glorious grace. What do I make of the grace of God? Is that a reality that doesn't just go through here, but also comes into here? Our Lord Jesus Christ once asked, was once asked in the, in the Gospels, he, he once asked this question, who is my brother, who is my mother, and who are my brothers? And then he answered his own question when he stretched out his hands and said, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, whoever is a pretty open-ended word, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. 
Our status in the family of God is a very dynamic thing. And if you're going to maintain that we always ought to be very strict about who exactly we call our brothers and sisters, well, then I've got a problem because I'm never going to stand then before a congregation and say brothers and sisters because I don't know whether you're all brothers and sisters. Really? Because the confession, Article 29 says, there are hypocrites mixed in the church with the good. But God is gracious. Can we not be gracious? Calling somebody your brother or sister is not a sacrament. This is the grace of God. This is the grace of God. I've often dealt with people, and I'm sure your office bearers deal with people who don't quite meet the criteria of Jesus Christ. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. But back to Paul. It's helpful to realize that the letter to the Ephesians is thought to be a circular letter. It's apparent, they say, from the scarcity of details in this letter. He doesn't give too many details like he does in Romans, for example. It was the nature of these kind of letters. Think of Colossians 4, verse 6, where he tells the people of Colossae to read the letter that he wrote to the church of Laodicea and to read the one he wrote to them in their church. These letters were really addressed to all the churches of Asia Minor. They were expected to read each other's mail. So Paul is extending his blessing to all the churches of Asia Minor. May the grace and love of God be to you all. You should realize, too, that everywhere that Paul wrote, he had opponents in Rome and in Colossae and Galatia and Ephesus, and they weren't always the same opponents. There were many different opponents who had different things they wanted to say was the truth. So what does Paul say? Grace be to those who agree with me. Does he say, grace be to those who receive my gospel? No, he's as universal, as Catholic, as our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. All is a significant word. If God wants to be gracious, if Christ extends his arms to all those who do his will, who are we to do any less? But the word of God would remind you about one condition. Because look, we are told not just to love our Lord Jesus, but to love him with an undying love or with a love that is sincere. It's interesting to notice in the original Greek language that the last word in the sentence, the last word in the whole letter is that word sincerity or undying or immortality or incorruptibility however you translate it. The best dictionary calls it the state of not being subject to decay or corruption. Bless, grace be to all who love our Lord Jesus with a love that is not subject to decay or corruption. It's fascinating that Paul ends his letter in this way. The letter that began with references to the one end of eternity with God's loving act of electing the people to God ends with a reference to the other end of eternity. As one scholar put it, then the epistle, which opened with a bold glance into the eternal past, closes with the outlook of an immortal hope. But the question is, what does the phrase go with? Some would suggest that it should go with the word grace. Then it's a reference to grace undying. 
or it means grace forever, a delightful thought, but most would take it with the verb to love, undying love, incorruptible love, a sincere love, a love that's not subject to decay or corruption. That's who Paul wishes the grace of God upon. And that leaves you with a searching question. Do we have such a love for our Lord Jesus Christ? Do we love him more today than we did when he first came to us? Is the river of grace and love growing deeper and wider with the passage of time? Some people will worry that their money will run out before their life does. That's why you have all kind of TFSAs and RRSPs and you know what and whatever have you because what happens if your money runs out before your life does? Well, here's a greater concern. Will, your, will the grace of God in your life run out before your life does? Will your love for the Lord Jesus run out before your life does? You can think of our brothers that we mentioned. Will your muscles give out? Will your love for your Lord Jesus outlast your lungs or your heart? Do we know of a love that will not die even though we will? Obviously, the only way you're going to know that is by the grace of God. Grace be with all who love God with an undying love. It begins with grace. It continues with grace. It ends with grace so that you will never end. So true it is. The grace of God that makes the worst times bearable and the best times Believable. Amazing grace indeed. How sweet the sound. How gracious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Because grace has brought me safe thus far. And grace will lead me home. Grace then to all who love our Lord Jesus with an undying love. Amen.